From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 384, Security Insanity with guest Troy Hunt. Recorded Monday, August 25th, 2014. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio. Uh, with me today, a returning guest, Troy Hunt, the web security guy. He's an MVP, a serial plural site author, and the creator of a Have I Been Pwned site, where you can search for compromised accounts across a whole range of major data breaches covering hundreds of millions of records. If it talks over HTTP or sends angle brackets, Troy is going to want to break it and then teach folks how to fix it again. Welcome, sir. G'day, Richard. Good to be back. Uh, it's good to have you back. And and we just had a little fun on Twitter the other day and decided we had to write that down, make a recording about it. Do you want to tell the story? <laughs> it's it's just another one of those bizarre scenarios where sort of concerned Joe Citizen has said, hey, I'm a little bit worried about your security or, or something or other similar. And a social media account jumps up and just gives the most obscure, ridiculous answer that you could possibly conceive of so and the and the customer was complaining because they were restricting the length of password right it was keeping it too short yeah yeah so this was o2 in the uk and uh apologies to british listeners but the uk seems to feature quite a lot in in these sort of tweets but um yeah so uh, o2 uk came back and uh their, their tweet here is our systems are limited on length and ranges to ensure a smooth experience <laughs> we have multiple controls in place to protect data and you're sort of looking at going well, hang on everything we know about strong passwords with length and randomness and variety of characters are important apparently, right yeah, this is I all mean, about fighting entropy is- like this is known science but that line that tweet is so clean it's so a smooth experience. Was he reading it from a script? <laughs> it was a pretty slick response. Well, yeah, yeah, look, this is the thing, you know, inevitably call centers are scripted out for various scenarios. Yes. You know, we all know they work. And that I guess way. We're, treating, we're treating Twitter like it's a call center too. Yeah. And I, I guess to some regard, it, it, you know, it, it is that way. And I actually, I noticed when I chimed in on this, I got a response from O2 that, that looked like it was just, you know, check the box, which says, hi, Troy, do you have a concern? Yeah. <laughs> and I think I saw you get one too. Yes, I did. Um, so, I, you know, look, there's a degree of automation, but some of the other things that come up as well are very specific responses to very specific questions. And I, I think in those cases, it's more likely the operator has possibly tried to do their best, but clearly just not understood the context they're talking about. Right. Well, and let's face it, we're not normal customers. And I suspect the fellow that originally asked this question was was a developer as well, since they were or mm. an IT person. They were in our sort of circle there. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I mean, we, we travel in these circles that have probably got a bit more idea about these sort of things. But it's also kind of the, the, the scary thing, isn't it, where, you know, we... Uh, sort of familiar enough with the technology to, to, to call BS when it is BS. Yes. But how many other people out there are getting responses and they go, oh, okay, well, that's great. You know, this is actually good that I have a password that's ABC123 because it's smooth. <laughs> <laughs> it's a smooth experience right up until it's all published all over the internet. 
That's it. That's uh, it. That's too <laughs> and so, I, yeah, the question here again is, I, I don't, it's hard to speak to intent. I mean, we are obviously not that vendor, so we don't know their intent per se. But, you know, I, I always want to attribute to incompetence rather than malice that they just, they don't know better. Yeah, it's, it's that old saying, isn't it? Don't attribute to um, malice what can be um, contributed to uh, or attributed to in- incompetence. And and I think in many cases that's what it is. I mean, at the end of the day, someone like O2, they're, they're not out there to make it an unpleasant experience for customers, right? And sure. by all accounts, they want to sell services and they want to retain uh, loyal customers. But uh, clearly this is just you know, getting social media into technical discussions on the public timeline. Yeah. You know, it's one thing if it was a private discussion and someone said something stupid and then they went, okay, look, I'll escalate it to the technical department or something. That's fine. But, you know, guys, you're having this discussion in public. And when one of these things gets RT'd and it's ridiculous enough like some of the other ones I've seen, you end up with thousands of RTs and a whole bunch of people sitting around going, hey, look at these guys. <laughs> That's not productive. So your bad security decisions can create a PR nightmare for you before the actual disasters happen. I mean, ultimately, this would be a benefit to them. It's like, guys, you understand that the security experts out there are all going, this is dumb. You shouldn't do this. So that, it, it, that's exactly right. And I've got a good example of this here. Um, and in fact, uh, after we chatted on the weekend when uh, I saw this O2 account, I thought, man, I keep seeing this. I've got to do something. So I created a Twitter account called Infosec Insanity. And I've started <laughs> uh, RTing some of these um, classic insane tweets and linking to some of the other ones, uh, some of the other posts and things I've seen over the years. And I've got one here, the first one on the timeline, actually. This one was from British Gas. And the context here is that this has since been retweeted for 468 times. Wow. Now, someone said, hey, British Gas, why can't I paste a password into the login box? Because I use a password manager so I can create long, strong passwords. And British Gas said, we'd lose our security certificate if we allowed pasting. It could leave us open to a, quote, brute force attack. What? Thanks, Steve. Go figure. (laughs) Pasting (laughs) provides a means for brute force attacks? Well, allegedly so. So that, uh, yeah, that got a lot of retweets. And I guess that's the point, right? If you do go out on the public timeline and, and you say something foolish, you are going to get a lot of people paying attention to it. Yeah, no kidding. And that is a pretty foolish statement. But that seems very specific. That doesn't seem like it's on a script. Somebody no, said exactly. that for British Gas. Someone read the post and went, okay, I know how to answer this. <laughs> Clearly not. But um, my all-time favorite, and it's, it's a bit unfortunate that this account has actually been deleted, but it was from Tesco uh, in the UK again. So sorry, guys, that's three British ones in a row. Um, wow. Tesco in, in the UK, this was a couple of years ago, and um, I ended up writing a piece on this that, that went a bit viral. And uh, we're talking about sort of password storage and whether or not passwords were stored in a cryptographically secure way. I think at the time they were actually emailing passwords. Right. Uh, And I pointed this out and they responded via Twitter and they said, passwords are stored in a secure way. They're only copied into plain text when pasted automatically into a password reminder mail. (laughs) (laughs) Now, that one, before the account was deleted, and it obviously wasn't because of that. I think they've just sort of rolled over their Twitter accounts. That had thousands of retweets because it's just the most ludicrous thing. Wow. Yeah, they kind of left out that part where it's plain text email all the way. 
And look, I mean, inevitably the penny drops and, you know, the, the number of times I see this sort of thing, I mean, another classic example that's, that's maybe a little less um, nutty but a, a more understandable mistake is people will do things like they'll load a login form over HTTP and post to HTTPS. Right. And we'll get this Twitter discussion going where someone says, hey, guys, your login form's insecure. And they go, oh, no, but it posts to HTTPS. Uh, and then someone else will go, oh, yeah, but you didn't load it securely, so it's not really – and we'll go backwards and forwards, and then I'll write a blog post, and then eventually it'll get fixed. And in fact, I did this just a few weeks ago with one of our cinemas here in Australia where they were loading the payment form over HTTP, and they were – adamant via Twitter that, look, it's secure, it's secure. It's, and again, it's like a social media guy saying, hey, look, right. it's secure. And mind you, plenty of developers get this wrong. So he may have had a, a dev whisper in his ear and say, hey, it, you know, it posts to HTTPS, we're all good. But it's just unfortunate for them that this sort of issue plays out in the public domain when it's a Twitter discussion. Well, so there's two pieces that I'm thinking about here now. So we dig into this further. Uh, one is obviously they need to know something about security. The next thing is you should just not talk about this in Twitter. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, this is the piece. correct answer. And I think I poked O2 on this the other day. It was like the correct answer is to say, hey, we're glad you're concerned about security. We are too. We'll look into this right away. Yeah, exactly. And, and look, some of them do that. I, I had an incident that I'll, I'll write about in a little while once I've finished fixing it where uh, an organization did something in terms of their certificates. So they actually had uh, a mobile app, uh, which was for uh, hailing taxis. Mm -hmm. And the whole thing talked uh, over HTTPS, but to a website with a self-signed certificate right. that had expired and clearly no certificate validation. <laughs> and I sort of said on Twitter, hey, guys, can I talk to you about your security? And immediately this went, yep, fine, take it offline um, and eventually sorted it all out. And that's the way to do it, right? It's, yeah. it's not something that you want to play out on the public domain. No, yeah, it's, yeah, we don't talk about our security in public. We talk about it privately. And if somebody's got a real concern, you know, take it that way. That's one piece. The next piece is, I'm just baffled that we're still having these discussions. Like, I don't know about you. I, I was just working on a web server shortly before we started recording here. HTTPS everything. My CPUs aren't doing anything. They're smoking cigarettes and playing poker. They're bored. <laughs> Give them something yeah. to encrypt, please. <laughs> that look, and that's true, right? And I know that Google did a lot of research when they took Gmail HTTPS only, and they were saying, look, it's like 1% of your CPU. Yeah that it will take. And actually, speaking of Google, what they announced recently was that SSL or HTTPS, as we probably should say, is actually going to be good for your SEO. You're going to rate higher on Google searches if you have HTTPS. Isn't that interesting? What a neat play by Google. I know, yeah, I was, exactly. A, a few years ago, they did the same thing with performance. They said, mm -hmm. we're going to account for how fast your page is as part of your search ranking. But, you know, this is really good, particularly when you consider how many sort of uh, dodgy things happen in the SEO space. To yes. now turn around and go, we're going to help your SEO by doing this one simple thing, and it's going to be for the betterment of online society yes. as well. Yeah, it makes everything better. Of course, it also begs the question, yeah, you know, how, I guess it doesn't really make any difference whether they are HTTPS or not. Their search engines obviously can handle the encryption too. Well, I think the the big interesting thing there, and in fact, I was talking to Mark Gravel from Stack Overflow uh, when we were over in Norway recently about um, about going HTTPS, because one of the things that Stack Overflow said is, look, when we go from HTTP to HTTPS, we don't know what's actually going to happen to our SEO because we're going to end up, you know, 302ing or 301ing from the old 
scheme to the new scheme. Right. So is Google going to you know, punish you for that? Exactly. Just kind of go nuts and say, hey, well, look, you know, now it's a new resource or it's a moved resource. Is it going to have an adverse impact? Uh, and and uh, from what I understood at the time, talking to him, that there wasn't really much info, even from Google themselves, about uh, about what that impact would be. So I, I would kind of wonder if there's a whole bunch of big sites sitting around going, you go first. <laughs> yeah. No, you go first. <laughs> you know, let's see what out. happens. <laughs> well, and I've certainly run into that uh, with uh, security issues internally. We, at one point, were talking about uh, yeah, this data need to be encrypted end to end. And I'm like, okay, what does end to end actually mean? Because especially when you're talking about something like SSL, often mm. we have these, you know, F5 big IP boxes of things that are terminating the SSL at the edge of our network, which means it's decrypted the rest of the way yeah. in. Yeah. And is that yeah. still end to end? They're like, no, no, it has to be end to end. Okay. So I'll maintain the encryption into the server, but then I'm going to decrypt it in an, uh, uh, a low-level process, and it's going to be yeah. passed to another process unencrypted. Is that still end-to-end? Yeah, you're getting very sort of abstract in some ways. Yeah. It's, it, it's a it, question it's of what, and, you know, they're saying these vague terms, like it must be security. Like, well, what does that actually mean? And, of course, in the vast majority of cases, you're going to be terminating at whatever device it is that, that's sort of uh, holding your certificate. But, you know, as we know, post-NSA and Snowden and all that sort of thing, even in cases like Google with their internal network traffic uh, not being encrypted, you know, hey, the, the, SS, um, the NSA jumps in there and puts a little smiley face in the places where they can get to the uh, unencrypted traffic. Yeah. So, well, the, yeah, and you know, the res- resolution of that conversation was any, at any point when data is traveling over the wire, we want it encrypted. And, and look, that makes sense because I think once you actually start to get in process and into the internals of the machine, yeah. you know, now you're starting to get to something that's going to be an exponentially large amount of effort in order to achieve that level of encryption. And you've got to kind of ask, is, is that really where our threat is? Well, that was sort of the, the, what- the point where it's like, okay, I, I appreciate encrypting on the wire because you mm. could be sniffing somewhere in the path. But if they're able to hack the machine well enough to to get at decrypted data and memory, that machine's already compromised. No amount of encryption is going to save you at that point. Exactly. You've probably got bigger things to worry about. Yeah. (laughs) There are levels of compromise that you're prepared to deal with and ones you're not. Exactly. Exactly. And, and you know, to me, most security is, I I call it the, uh, the club factor. You know the club for your car? Where you, mm, it fits yeah. over your steering wheel so that your steering wheel can't be turned unless you got the key to take that thing off. To me, most it's security is like a club. It doesn't make your car impossible to steal. It makes it harder to steal than the car next to it. And it comes back to, to who is the threat actor that yes. you're protecting yourself from. And, you know, I, I think sort of conventional wisdom is we've got these three threat actors. We've got hacktivists that are opportunistic and they're kids and they've got time on their hands. We've got career criminals that want to make money out of it. And then we've just got the government that's got all the money in the world, but they're probably not interested in you in right. terms of, you know, ripping a few dollars off you. And those actors are, are very different in terms of their resources and their capabilities. And, of course, the sort of sites that you build may or may not appeal to each of them. Yes. Well, and so everything that's opportunistic, whether I I would sort of put hacktivists and criminals in that area, where it's opportunistic, the club-level security is enough. You make it difficult enough that they'll move on to an easier target because they're not after you, they're after easy targets. Yeah, this is where I think there's a bit of misunderstanding as well. A lot of people go, well, hey, you know, I don't have anything that that – 
that is of any value to someone. Right. You know, I don't have money uh, or any sort of financial upside. And you, you sort of go, well, hang on, you're on the web, right? Okay, <laughs> you're a target because there are so many kids out there that are just Googling around for uh, query strings with ID in it so that they can then go and chuck that into an automated tool like SQL Map or Havage or something and see if it you know, turns up any fruit. And, and that's enough. And they'll fit an agenda. And the number of times you see hacktivists come out and say, you know, because of such and such a cause or, you know, you haven't been treating the children right or you've, you know, whatever it may be, that right. will fit a reason into why they've hacked you. Yeah, and you could get, and so, and that's the whole thing when you talk about the hacktivist types is they could suddenly pick you. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, I mean, it's it's not just that as well because that implies a very sort of conscious decision, but you look at the number of events that you have in logs that are just automated crawlers. Yep. The number of Azure websites I have on ASP.net that have log entries for crawlers looking for admin.php, <laughs> <You know? laughs> and that is just indiscriminate. Yeah, it's it's a bot just looking at random for anything. And that that to me is the sort of club approach that and a little bit of security so that the automated tool can't pull anything from you is enough. Yeah, it, it, exactly. And it, I mean, to that effect, there are lots of little things that sort of, uh, I guess, help that objective. So, you know, little things like uh, response headers disclosing the server version or the, or the framework version or the powered by uh, header attribute. Right. You know, you, you turn that stuff off and, okay, for the automated bots just crawling around, they're now not going to know what that uh, server is running or what that website is running. Right. And people go, yeah, but you can find out easily because you look at the page source and it's got view state. And yeah, but that's now another step. Yeah, that that's, that's past the automation. Exactly. Hey, I got to pay the bills here. I have a new sponsor. And Run As Radio is brought to you by ScriptRock, the makers of Guardrail. Guardrail lets you discover, track, and monitor your node configurations and detect configuration consistencies across your entire shop. Guardrail's unique visual differentiator makes it simple and straightforward for your entire team, bringing the power of DevOps into the mainstream. And if you go to the uh, ScriptRock site, you can enter the coupon code RUNASRADIO, which is all one word, and get three months of Guardrail standard for free. And that includes support for up to 50 nodes on Windows, OS X, or any of the Unix flavors, as well as third-party cloud providers. And to top it off, you can export your configurations to Ansible, Puppet, or Docker to make automation a snap. Don't automate what you don't understand. Try Guardrail now at scriptrock.com slash runasradio. All right. So let's jump back to the password thing, because this one to me is the craziest of them all. And I mm-hmm. think more than anything about the XKCD entropy comic, the greatest thing of all time. It's like we, this whole, you got eight characters and it has to have an uppercase and a lowercase and a, some kind of punctuation character is some kind of number as opposed to give me a 60 character password. That is mm, a passphrase. Mm. That is something you would actually remember. Yeah. Uh, look, I guess it depends on what side of the fence you're on, right? So are you on, on the builder side of the fence, the consumer side of the fence in, in terms of, you know, what should we allow people to do? And then, you know, how should I actually create my passwords? And from my view, look, I, I think websites, they've got to have a minimum bar, right? I mean, we don't want people creating three character passwords yes. because they will create three character passwords. Um, so, you know, whether it's eight characters with at least one non-alphanumeric or whatever it may be, but there's got to be some minimum bar. But what I really don't get is setting an upper threshold 
anywhere within the bounds of reasonableness. You know, there was just no reason to turn around and go, hey, look, you can only have up to 12 characters uh, and you can't have uh, quotes, dashes, or the word select. <laughs> <You know? laughs> because, and, yeah, how, do, how else do you hold up a sign that says, please sequel eject me, please? Uh, and all the validation is done in JavaScript anyway. <laughs> so, <laughs> But it, look, it, it happens. It's the most obscure thing. And it, it, I've, I've got to call out Microsoft here as well because a lot of people hammer me on the fact that for your live ID for Microsoft, it's limited to 16 characters. Right. And you can't argue with the logic of the people, you know, complaining about this because 16 characters is a fairly low arbitrary limit. And sure. yes, they do have all of these other controls in place. And we probably shouldn't forget that, that, you know, the sort of the, uh, the anti-forgery and all the sort of fraud detection stuff that Microsoft have in place is a lot more than what you'll get with a basic website with your membership provider. Yeah. Um, but it's not a good look to say, hey, we're going to just chop you off at, you know, 12, 16, 20. You know, what's what's the upside? Yeah, I don't. there's no reason for it. And especially if you're doing what you're supposed to do with a password, which is stored as a hash. Well, that's it, because the next question, of course, is people go, okay, you're limiting to 12 characters. You got a Varchar 12, haven't you? <laughs> what, yeah. What's going on under there? Yeah. Uh, yeah, about that. I mean, yeah. I, can we get the general public to think in terms of as soon as I see a limit like that, I should not go to this site? Like, this is just a mistake? Well, it's it's a bit of a problem, isn't it? Because at the end of the day, if the site is providing a service that you need, right. and it's a decision between either definitely not getting that service or possibly putting yourself at a greater level of risk by having to choose a weaker password, you know. And But look, I mean, as a consumer, and again, I guess this is the other side of the coin, right? If I go to a website and I have to create a password and I've got arbitrary low limits put on things like like the entropy, you know, what should I do? And, and I still come back to the password managers. I love the idea of just generating the most crazy random password I possibly can. Right. And at the end of the day, even if that's only 12 characters, if it's a totally random, good mix of character password that's not going to appear in any sort of password dictionary, for all intents and purposes, that's a pretty good password. Yeah, you're ahead of the game at that point compared to most people. You're way ahead. It's very unlikely someone's going to go through. And, you know, this, of course, is assuming that the credentials are stored as some form of a cryptographic hash, even a bad cryptographic hash. If it is a, a, a high entropy 12-character password, it's probably not going to fall to general sort of brute force uh, cracking attacks if that database gets disclosed. Yes. The bigger problem, of course, is that a lot of the time it's not stored as any sort of cryptographic hash. It's plain text, and then it doesn't matter how long your password no. is. You know, you, you're screwed if that gets out. The better thing is that it's a one-time password you didn't use anywhere else. and uh, That's it. It's So it's not good for anything else except that site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, uh, you know, we've come to learn this. We still see so frequently the number of sites which are breached and the passwords are disclosed. And, hey, look at that. We don't have to crack them because they're all plain text. Yeah. Simple. No problem. Well, what, what are we saying now? The top million passwords are out in the wild. We now know what they are and they're just building tools to use them all. Well, this is the thing. I mean, there are so many password dictionaries out there that have been built up as a result of taking breaches and then actually using those. You know, there are so many good precedents that can be used. So I'm just looking through my PC here and I've got a couple of password lists here that I, I often use. So one is uh, Hashkiller. That's, uh, I'll give it to you in file size, 245 megabytes worth of passwords. <laughs> 
But the uh, the big one I've got here, there's one called Real Unique, uh, UNIQ, 15 gigabytes worth of plain text passwords. Wow. And these are passwords that have been pulled from breaches, and it's going to take a while for your, your hash cut or whatever password crack you want to use to sort of go through 15 gigabytes worth of passwords. But you're going to get a pretty good hit rate from most of the password dumps you see. Yeah. Yeah, it's really interesting. It's how, how thorough that is. And so obviously, you know, being more dynamic about it, I guess that's the ultimate solution here is that that you use a tool that generates a password for you so that you literally don't know it, which also addresses another one of my favorite XKCD security comics where the guy says, you know, you're using this amazing encryption. It'll take us a quadrillion <laughs> years to crack it or a $10 wrench and a threat yeah. to beat your head in if you don't give me the password. Yeah, I saw that coming. <laughs> <That's>, uh... <laughs> but if I don't know my password, it's like, dude, I don't know the password. Yeah, except then they come up with the $10 wrench and say, give me your keychain and your master password. And now they've got everything. Now they've got all your passwords. Am I better off or worse off? Well, you you know what? If there's a guy with a wrench who's willing to beat your skull in it, I've got bigger things to worry about than my passwords. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, we're definitely in a different class of uh, of security risk once we're dealing with a guy with a wrench. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) Uh, this, this, uh, we sort of blew over SSL and made happy noises around here, but the certificate situation with SSL to me is pretty frustrating too. Uh, do you, what are your best practices for dealing with certs? In terms of, uh, registering or yeah. installing? Or? Who are you using yeah. for a registrar? You know, are you staying purely top tier? Is it worth the money? Like what's the right way to go? I, I'm going uh, totally al cheapo with my personal stuff. Yep. Um, so I'm going uh, so cheap that it's free to start SSL. Um, so I'm, I'm using start SSL for things like my Have I Been Pwned site, which we mentioned earlier on. Um, I'm using it on a few others that are just sort of personal uh, hobby sites. Uh, but I, I'm sort of torn between how much value there is in paying, uh, that the top tier guys, you know, the, the, the Komodos or the, or the likes for, um, uh, for higher value certificates. Now, it's one thing if it's an EV cert. So if you actually have to provide sort of identity assurance, right. you know, you have to de- demonstrate who you are and what you do and so on. I get that because there's a value in that. But for a classic sort of class one cert where it's just simply registered against a domain name, they've got to validate that you own the domain name. So long as that certificate authority is a trusted root CA on the devices, and there was a while there where Start SSL had a couple of devices that they that they weren't on, but all that seems to be good now. You know, so long as they're there and the certificate validates and it's been handed out to the appropriate party, then I'm pretty good with it. And I guess that the, the reality of it is, if let's say it's start SSL, if they do have some sort of vulnerability that lets people uh, issue certs for domains that they're not authorized to, then that's really outside of your control anyway. If right. someone goes and gets a start SSL cert for you know star.google.com, like in the DigiNodar days, <laughs> yes. when all that went wrong. Well, and if, I, I want to think that the DigiNodar days are behind us. It seems to have stopped because there was a there was a whole chain of them right in a, sort of a year or so. Yeah, there was a Komodo around the same time, and it looks like the same guy involved in that, and it looks like a lot of it sort of gets tied back to Iran and, and possibly government-sponsored activities as well. But I, I guess DigiNoda was kind of the you know, the, the atypical or, or the worst-case scenario where, hey, look, these guys have actually issued a bunch of certificates to, to someone who had no rights whatsoever over the domains they requested them for. Right. 
you know, and, and then suddenly, well, it's, it's, you know, man in the middle is all open again. Exactly what we're getting SSL to protect ourselves from is now a serious risk. Do you think that was actually cyber warfare? That, that this was not just uh, uh, random hackers or, or just uh, a, a financial exploit, that it came down to, to government behavior? It it seems to, insofar as there was a lot of press after DigiNota about seeing a, a very large number of certificate revocation checks come from Iran uh, yeah. and go to DigiNota. So effectively what's happening here is people uh, are obviously uh, loading resources that return the certificate. Their machines are then checking the validity of that certificate and that, that uh, certificate check is going back to DigiNota. And clearly when they've gone through and done the forensics afterwards, they've gone, well, hang on a second, DigiNota is not the CA for Google. Google have got their own CA. Right. So why are we seeing revocation checks for uh, for Google going to DigiNota? And why are there like, I forget the numbers, but it's like hundreds of thousands of them coming from Iran. Now, when you see it clustered like that, and particularly for, for a region like Iran, where you do expect the government to be doing some fairly nasty things, you know, you, you got to ask is, you know, I don't know if we call it cyber warfare or not, but it certainly seemed to be state-sponsored activity against citizens. Yeah, definitely. And and in some ways, we, like we wanted to blame DigiNodar for this, that that this was just poor security of a second tier SSL cert authority. And don't use those those kinds of guys, you'll be fine. But it sounds like there was more in play than that. Yeah. And it, again, Komodo were caught up in it as well. So and, and they were an independent CA. And it seems to have been the same, um, uh, the same perpetrators behind it. Now, you know, you, you got to then sort of go, well, I, I guess how high is high enough for the security bar for a CA? And we expect right. it to be pretty high, right? Because yes. the ramifications are so bad when it's not. But we're also conscious that at the end of the day, it's it's never an absolute, right? You're never secure to the point where there is no vulnerability or there, or there is no risk. Right. Um, now, clearly, the, I think the fact that DigiNodar folded after that and Komodo obviously lives on is probably an indication that the bar was way too low on, on DigiNodar. Yeah. But I don't think for a moment that we won't see similar examples again in the future either. Mm -hmm. No, and it seems like a fairly powerful exploit if you, you want to significantly affect internet behavior. If you're, if you're going to be able to move fast with some man-in-the-middle attacks, you'll go after these things and move very fast. But it still, to me, feels more like cyber warfare than it does just like the run-of-the-mill criminal. Yeah, and, and possibly in part because at the end of the day, even though you may be able to compromise a CA or you may be able to fraudulently get a certificate, but not by any compromise on the CA, but perhaps a compromise of the target, you've still got to get in the middle of the traffic. You yep. know, just getting the certificate is not enough. You've still got to do what is often not an easy thing, you know, sort of short of uh, sitting in a cafe with a Wi-Fi pineapple or something. But a lot of the time it is actually happening uh, either at an organization level, and you, you could argue they've got some right there to, to man in the middle of their, um, uh, their staff, or it is happening at a government level because right. they have got access to the ISPs. Yeah, they've broken into the backbones and are able to actually sit in the intercept point. Well, I mean, the broken in is one way of putting it. Uh, already owning them and say, do this or we'll shoot you or whatever it yeah. may be is another way of putting it. And yeah. we've seen that happen in uh, Tunisia before where they have been man in the middling Facebook traffic at a time when Facebook was loading their login page over HTTP. Right. So the government in Tunisia sat in there, injected script and siphoned off credentials. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting, interesting times. And, it, and I think for the most part, for us in the IT space, we're just trying to hold on to hold on to our own data, much less to secure our company's data. 
Yeah, I, I guess we're just trying to keep, uh, you know, one or two steps ahead of the bad guys. But by the same token, a lot of these things as well are, are not hard. And when we talk about things like SSL, particularly for a new site, if you just go from day one, you put SSL over everything, you're a big step ahead. And it's really interesting in the wake of the NSA stuff to see just how much harder an HTTPS connection made it for them to get in the middle of traffic. You know, there's a lot of info that came out of there where yep. they had trouble with HTTPS and they were rather elated when they found services that wasn't using it properly. So things like Yahoo Mail are very happy with that. <laughs> so <laughs> even these the, these cheapy or free certificates do actually make it significantly harder for an adversary to get the traffic. Yeah, that's true enough. Troy, it's always fun to talk to you. I'm I'm excited about InfoSec Insanity. That's I'm I'm already following. I look forward to the crazy <laughs> things you're going to find there. Just to remind yeah. us every so often that there's some bad information out there that we can do better. Yeah, stay tuned. I think it's going to be fun. Troy Hunt, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Richard. And we'll talk to you next week on Run As Radio. Mm-hmm.